0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Unlikely Heroes. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. On January 1st, 2007, one of the greatest upsets in college football history took place at the Fiesta Bowl in Glendale, Arizona. The game was expected to be a lopsided blowout for football powerhouse, University of Oklahoma, because they were playing the smaller, lesser known school, Boise Boise State, excuse me. Oklahoma had finished the 2006 season 11-1 11-1 in the stronger Big 12 conference with a roster full of future NFL talent including Adrian Peterson who most likely will be a, a Hall of Fame running back in the NFL. Uh, Boise State on the other hand had gone 12-0 and in the what was considered a weaker Western Athletic Conference and they had a first-year head coach. In the weeks leading up to the game, the media depicted Oklahoma as Goliath and Boise State as David because the matchup seemed so lopsided. There was a long-held public perception back then that small schools should not be allowed to play big schools in the bowl championship series, the BCS is what it was called back then. This is before the college football playoff. And so uh, the perception began to change, though, when Boise State took a 21-10 to halftime lead into the locker room. Then they extended the lead to 28-10 in the third quarter. Just when it seemed Boise State was going to run away with a blowout upset, Oklahoma responded with 25 straight unanswered points. They got back into the game and they took their first lead with one minute to go in regulation. Boise State responded by scoring on a trick play with just seven seconds left in regulation to tie the game at 35-all. Now trick plays are unorthodox, unconventional, unexpected plays designed to catch the defense off guard. Teams rarely use them because they are often difficult to execute and also have a small percentage of success. However, Boise State didn't care that night. They didn't care about percentages either. After Oklahoma scored on their first overtime possession, taking a 42-35 lead, Boise State came back with another trick play. They went for two points and the win. The underdogs called a high-risk, high-reward play called Statue of Liberty, or Statue Left, as the players had learned it. It would be their third unconventional play of the evening in the final minutes of the game. Statue Left meant that the quarterback would fake a wide receiver's screen to his right side, uh, the right side of the formation, while handing the ball off with his left hand behind his back to the running back going the other direction. So it would, it would look kind of like this if you were behind. If I was quarterback. He snaps the ball, and he pretends to throw it there, but the ball's in his left hand behind his back, and the running back takes it and goes that way. But all the, all the offensive action and motion is going to the right. So it's designed to make the defense follow all the motion. It's it's sort of smoke and mirrors, you know. Well, they scored, and in this stunning two point conversion, it gave Boise State the lead and the win, and what is still considered one of the wildest and greatest college football upsets in history. Today we're going to look at uh, an unorthodox, unconventional, and unexpected. Trick play that the Lord called for his people to execute on the battlefield. We're continuing our series in the Hall of Faith today called Unlikely Heroes. I'd like to open, invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And then also take out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder. There's an outline so that you can follow along with me and hopefully jot down some things that the Lord might be saying to you. Hebrews chapter 11. The theme verse for this series uh, I've been encouraging you to memorize with me is Hebrews 11 verse 6. Let's read it out loud together. And without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now you might remember that Uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of new Christ followers who had been saved out of Judaism. They were experiencing intense persecution for following Christ. Their friends were deserting the faith, and they were considering doing the same. In order to encourage them to keep the faith, the author recounts some of the highlights from uh, past faith heroes, Old Testament heroes, who had trusted the Lord against all odds, and kept the faith. Another difficult time in which we have to live by faith is when we are facing what appears to be an unbeatable enemy. Thus, our big idea for today is this. Living faith enlists the Lord to help fight our battles. Living faith enlists the Lord to help fight our battles. The scriptures are flooded with language depicting the Christian life as a battle. In Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 John 2, we're told that we are at war. If you are a Christ follower, you are at war against your flesh, the world, and the devil. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that this is a spiritual war that requires spiritual weapons. He then writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that we need to have the mindset of soldiers fighting in a foreign country. This is most likely what inspired early church father John Chrysostom to write this, quote, you are but a poor soldier of Christ if you think... You can overcome without fighting, and suppose that you can have the crown without conflict. It's unfortunate that many Christians today don't understand this. I think this is why the author of Hebrews, in addition to uh, all the encouragement that he provides in this chapter, uh, he's also reminding his readers that the Christian life is not for wimps. Or milk toast or cupcakes. And so, as we near the end of our guided tour through the Hall of Faith, the author stops in front of a statue of Joshua and asks us Have you heard the story about Joshua and what happened at Jericho? If you would look at Hebrews 11, verse 30, we see, just as we have in previous messages in this series, that the prepositional phrase, by faith, precedes the next example that he's going to give. And so he says, in verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Again, remember, the author of Hebrews puts by faith in front of each example he gives so that we will not forget what allowed these faith heroes to do what they did. It wasn't their physical strength, their military might, their, their brains, their good looks, or anything like that. It was their faith in the Lord. Now, it was common for the authors of Scripture to cite past victories in order to provide present confidence the psalms and the prophetic books are filled with references to god's hand at work in the exodus crossing the red sea other examples are mentioned uh, f- the lord helping the people of israel defeat enemies and much more this form of encouragement basically says hey look if god came through back then then he certainly can come through for you again. And that pattern repeats itself several times in the scriptures. The Battle of Jericho is not only a famous children's story, but it's also a true, real, historic event that's been verified by archaeologists. It is one that proved anyone who has the Lord on their side will never lose because he's undefeated. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles back to Joshua chapter 6 so we can look at the rest of the story about how this got into the hall of faith. Joshua chapter 6. The book of Joshua follows Deuteronomy, but precedes Judges. Now, as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of background and context of what's happened so far. At the end of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses passes the baton of leadership to his protege, Joshua. And then Moses passes away. Joshua had been Moses' apprentice in training for 40 years. And the people of Israel were at the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The book of Joshua documents the military campaign that allowed Israel to take possession of the land God had promised them in the Abrahamic covenant, which we have studied earlier in this series. Joshua's job was to lead God's people into the promised land of Canaan, drive out its occupants and then divide the promised land across or amongst the twelve tribes of the people of Israel. Now in Joshua chapter two, spies were sent to gather intelligence on Jericho and its army. In chapter three, around two million Israelites, this is civilians and soldiers, crossed the Jordan River. The Jordan River was at flood stage then And so it was about a mile wide. But the Lord parted the Jordan River, just like he did the Red Sea, so that they could cross over. The people had prepared their hearts before the Lord, and the army had their weapons ready. They were ready to claim what God had promised them decades earlier. And so we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 6, Sorry, in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days, seven priests, shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up and everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Here's the first of three truths that this story teaches us about the Lord and about faith. The first of three truths, and this is a number one uh, on your outline, is winning faith sometimes requires an outrageous path to victory. Winning by faith uh, sometimes requires an outrageous path to victory. I say sometimes because the internet is filled with sermons and I I checked this week, by the way, just to see what other pastors have preached on this story and to make sure I didn't duplicate anything. I wanted to try and say some fresh things. Well, interestingly, I found there were many sermons on the Internet sort of declaring this this story as how God always works. And that's unfortunate because it's bad hermeneutics. Uh, Joshua 6 is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive one. It describes what God did one time, not what God will do all the time. Still, though, there is a lot that we can learn about the Lord from the story and how he works in history. And so if you would look at verse 1, it says, Jericho was shut up because of the people of Israel. This happened because chapter 5 tells us Uh, The word had spread about the Lord parting the Jordan River and the Israelites coming, all two million of them, and this caused fear to spread across the land. Contrary to popular belief, Jericho wasn't a large city, but it was heavily fortified. After excavating the area where Jericho once stood, archaeologists uh, believe the city covered around eight acres and was protected by 25-foot-tall walls measuring 20 feet thick. It says in verse 4, there were seven priests. The Lord's instructions were for seven priests, seven trumpets. On the seventh day, they were to blow seven times or circle seven times. Why seven? Well, throughout the scriptures, the number seven is the Lord's favorite number. It is, uh, I think it's because it symbolizes wholeness or perfection to him. Um, It doesn't mean that it's a lucky number you should play in the lottery. It's just a number that uh, comes up several times throughout the scriptures in different areas as one of his favorites. Now, why trumpets? Well, trumpets happen to be one of his favorite instruments. Uh, Trumpets were used throughout the scriptures in war and in worship. Trumpets also announce the coming of the Lord. Uh, For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul is describing what the rapture will be like for believers, Paul writes in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. In other words, there will be no doubt that Jesus is coming back. Now, this was certainly an unorthodox, unconventional, and unexpected trick play the Lord was calling here. This would be sort of like, I tried to imagine what this would be like in today's world. It, would, it, would, it seems to me it would be like the head football coach returning to the locker room after pregame warm ups and telling his team, sorry, guys. The administration wants the cheerleaders to play the first half. What? What? They're—they're not any—they're not trained for this. We've been practicing all week. Or it would be like, uh, say, an army general telling his troops, "Stand down, men. The chaplains and the medics are going to go and take the beachhead today, and then tomorrow you'll fall in behind them." So um, some of the people of Israel must have found their heads kind of spinning, wondering what on earth is the Lord doing here? We've been preparing for this. But the Lord sometimes requires us to take outrageous paths to victory because it gets us to exercise our faith. And I think this is a good time for us to review the definition of faith. We've been learning in this series, uh, faith is and I'm going to encourage you to write this down, fill in the blanks on your outline. It's believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. It's believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Now, there are most likely two reasons, at least two I could think of, of why the Lord wanted to conquer Jericho in this way. The first, uh, I think, was a tactical reason. Although Jericho was small, it was heavily fortified. And commentators believe, and historians uh, believe, it would have been difficult for Israel's army to overcome Jericho because they had no siege engines. They had no battering ramps, catapults, or moving towers. All they had for weapons were slings and arrows and spears. Another reason that comes to mind would be a spiritual one. And that is that the Lord wanted there to be no doubt who would get the glory for this victory. The Lord does not like to share his glory with anybody else, and he knows that humans are glory stealers. We like to take credit for things that the Lord does, and we like to take credit for things that we think we did that the Lord actually helped us with or gave us the ability to do. And so I think he wanted to remind the people of Israel that he was the one who had promised them this land, he was the one who had brought them out this far, and he was the one who would get them through this military campaign. Now, although this is a descriptive text, it does substantiate a pattern That we can see throughout the scriptures of the Lord using irony and disproportion to get things done. The Lord loves to use unknown, unlikely, and unexpected people or things to accomplish his plans. Think about this for a second. Uh, We already studied Sarah uh, a couple weeks ago who was infertile childless, and 90 years old. The Lord said, you're going to have a baby. Uh, you probably have heard of Gideon, whose 300 men defeated 100,000 Midianites. Lord loves that. And then there's the shepherd boy with a slingshot named David and five smooth stones, absolutely unqualified to beat Goliath. But the Lord loves that. Then there's the prideful army commander Naaman in 2 Kings. He was told he could be healed of leprosy if he would wash himself in the Jordan River seven times. Oh, and then there was the teenage virgin who would give birth to the Son of God in a barn. The five loaves and two fish that Jesus used to feed thousands of hungry people. And then there's the long-awaited Messiah who doesn't rescue his people from the Roman Empire by riding a chariot behind an angel army, but rather takes their place on the cross so he can offer salvation from their sin. The Lord loves to use the unknown, unlikely, and unexpected to accomplish his plans. He uses what's foolish to shame the wise, And what's weak, to shame the strong, so that we can only boast in the Lord. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There shouldn't be anybody else boasting about anybody else. So living faith enlists the Lord, to help fight our battles. If you would look back at the text in verses 8 through 11, so just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark. While the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people. You shall not shout. Or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth. Until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city. Going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Here's the second point in your outline, the second truth that this story teaches us, and that is winning by faith always requires patient obedience. Winning by faith always requires patient obedience. Back in Numbers chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapters 13 and 14, 12 spies had been dispatched to survey the promised land. And its people. After 40 days of reconnaissance, 10 of the spies came back with a bad report that scared the people, while only two, Joshua and Caleb, were confident the Lord could deliver the land he had promised. This lack of faith by the 10 spies and how it spread throughout the people infuriated the Lord in Numbers 13 and 14. It caused him then to sideline the people of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for each day they had done reconnaissance. The Lord did this because he wanted the unbelieving generation to pass away. And I think he wanted to get them ready to go take the promised land. So they had waited a long time for this to come. And then they get right up to the Jordan River. They cross over. They can see the promised land. And they have to wait another week. Can you imagine what that would have been like? On the one hand, they were motivated to trust the Lord because they did not want to go back in the wilderness, right? On the other hand, it must have been difficult to wait another week when they were so Close. If you've walked with Jesus for a while, then you probably have experienced the struggle that takes place in the heart while you wait for God to do what he has promised. Hope in God's promises is tempered with a growing impatience in his timing. Being gripped with God's greatness comes with questions about his goodness. confidence that he will come through is coupled with the nagging curiosity of how is he going to do this you are not alone along with the people of israel thousands of saints throughout history have struggled with this including myself but here's what i have learned in my own walk and that is that a persistent walk with god will always include seasons of patiently waiting on him. It's unavoidable. When you walk with the Lord persistently, he will put you in seasons where you have to wait on him. Now, this text here that we just read in chapter 6 uh, includes a couple of, bits of wisdom, two bits of wisdom, letters A and B on your outline, that I think we need to um, make sure we don't miss as we wait on the Lord. And so having a patient obedience includes, and here's letter A, knowing when to speak. You'll notice in verse 10 that Joshua told the Lord's people, you shall not make your voice be heard. Only the trumpets shall be heard. Now one reason I think possibly why the Lord was doing this is that every day for a week, the people of Jericho heard those trumpets outside the walls. And it was sort of like, um, I don't know if you remember this, when you were a kid, it's sort of like when your parent, your mom, your dad would say, go to your room, you're going to get a spanking. And then they'd let you sit there for a while. As though like the anticipation of the spanking coming was worth worse than the spanking itself. Um, it, it, it just it must have caused fear to spread throughout the city of Jericho as they were all locked in behind their walls, and every day they heard a few thousand Israelites circling with the trumpets blowing, building anticipation for their impending doom. Joshua says, you shall not make your voice heard. When we are engaged in a spiritual battle, such as defending our reputation, responding to unjust criticism, reconciling a broken relationship, or sharing the gospel with a loved one, it is very, very important to discern when to speak and when to be silent. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to be silent and there is a time to speak. And then he writes in Proverbs chapter 17 that wise people use restraint with their words, and even fools are considered wise when they keep silent. So it's important when you're engaged in a spiritual battle to use discernment to ask the Lord to give you discernment on when the right time is to speak. That time came in verse 16, where on the seventh day, Joshua says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. It was on that seventh day that the Lord wanted them to use their voices. Look at verse 16. Verses 12 to 19, with me, if you would. Next, it says Joshua rose early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Here's the second bit of wisdom that I think this text holds for us when we are waiting on the Lord. Having a patient obedience also includes, B, avoiding sin while you wait. Avoiding sin while you wait. In verses 18 and 19, Joshua reminds the people everything is to be sorted into two categories that they find inside the walls of Jericho. First, all the silver and the gold and the valuables are to be given to the Lord's treasury. Second, everything else was to be devoted to destruction for the Lord. Destroyed. Because the citizens of Jericho worshipped pagan gods, the Lord did not want, he did not want his people taking things from Jericho that could spiritually contaminate their souls, such as idols and other things used in pagan worship. The Lord did not want his people to turn away from him again. Have you ever noticed how attractive sin gets when you're waiting on the Lord? It's as though waiting is so painful and excruciating for our flesh that Our flesh just wants some kind of relief and is more tempted to turn to sin, to find that relief. Examples of this kind of sinful relief might be taking justice into your own hands when you're tired of waiting on the Lord to make things right. Even though Romans 12 says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Or maybe uh, it's uh, dating or marrying an unbeliever because you're tired of waiting for the Lord to provide a godly mate. I think we need to be on our guard against sin while we're waiting for the Lord. Because if we give in to sin, we may end up forfeiting the blessing we've been waiting for. So having a patient obedience includes knowing when to speak and avoiding sin while you wait. Let's look at verses 20 and 21 as we wrap up the story. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, and every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Verse 21, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Here's number three on your outline. Winning by faith also includes doing your part. Winning by faith also includes doing your part. Verse 20 and 21 uncover a reality in the Bible and a side of the Lord that many people struggle to accept. One of the many questions that these two verses raise is why would the Lord tell his people to kill men, women, children, and animals? Well, first, we need to remember that God told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 that he was going to use the people of Israel as an instrument of judgment against the pagan nations that occupied the promised land. So the Lord wasn't just Moving them out so his people could move in, the Lord was also judging those nations for their sin and their pagan idol worship. The Canaanites were extremely wicked people that the Lord did not want influencing his holy people. The Lord wanted his people to be a means of blessing to the world, but this could only happen if they remained pure and holy. Uh, Secondly, Rahab told the spies in Joshua chapter 2 that the people of Jericho knew the judgment of the Lord was coming. They had heard about what God was doing, and yet they did not repent. And so they had opportunities to repent and come to know the Lord, but did not. Thirdly, the scriptures contain numerous examples of of the Lord using nations to bring judgment or discipline for sin. One that comes to mind that's well known is how the Lord prophesied and then did use the Babylonians to come and conquer the Israelites and then uproot them and take them back to Babylon uh, as exiles for 70 years. This happened in 586 B.C. And the Lord did it, using Babylon to consequence his own people because they had repeatedly sinned and sinned and sinned and he just had gotten fed up with it. What it reveals about the Lord is how much he hates sin and how seriously he takes it. The more important principle that I want us to see is that fighting by faith rarely means letting God do all the work. After the walls fell at Jericho, the Israelites still had to go into the city and clean house. Uh, You've heard me say before that we need to be balanced as we apply our theology by avoiding ditches. Well, last week, uh, I think it was last week, when we we, uh, studied waiting on God and the need to avoid trying to help him like Sarah did with Hagar. Well, in this passage, in this story, I think we need to remember that faith doesn't mean sitting back and just letting God do all the work. More often than not, he wants to involve us in the battle. He wants us to partner with him. And so, for example, if, if you're battling impulsive spending, it would be wise for you to not only pray and ask the Lord to help you get over that and resist temptation, but it would also be wise to cut up your credit cards, and stop going to the mall. <laughs> uh, don't, don't expose yourself to sale ads uh, so that you're tempted to go, well, there's a sale. I have to buy something. Why? Because I could save money. Well, how can you save money if you spend money? Not saying we've ever had that conversation in my house before, just, just saying. If you battle lustful thoughts, for example, uh, in addition to praying and memorizing scripture and asking the Lord to help you keep your heart and mind pure, it would also be wise to cut out any media content that you listen to that talks about explicit sex and lustful things like music and movies and TV shows. And I could go on and on, but the Lord wants to partner with us, not to pamper us in battle. You see, the former molds soldiers while the latter encourages laziness and apathy. I think this may be why the 5th century theologian Augustine wrote this, without God, we cannot, and without us, God will not. So, how do we apply some of the truths that we've learned here. And Jesus said, if you love me, then obey my commands. And, uh, James chapter 1, James says, if you want to be blessed, then be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. So here's two applications that come to mind. Again, these are not the only ones. The Lord may give you uh, a couple others that are uh, personalized for your life. The first that came to my mind was, don't confine an infinite God with finite logic. And this is probably this is a good one for me. That's probably why I wrote it down because I'm I'm prone to this. Um, when I was a younger believer, I unknowingly told the Lord how He needed to solve my problems. Maybe you've done this too. Lord, please please provide for this unexpected car repair bill because I don't have the money. Please tell my boss to give me that raise I deserve, or just burn down the repair shop before they send collections after me. Just kidding. I just said that to see if you were paying attention. Well, what if the Lord wants to provide for that repair bill by, say, giving you an unexpected tax return, or telling a member of your church, by the Holy Spirit, in their devotional time, that they need to pay that bill for you, anonymously actually been blessed, I've had that happen before uh, a couple of times over the years where I've gone to, I've fretted and fretted and fretted and prayed and prayed and prayed and, and okay, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to put groceries on the table this month because I've got to pay for this car repair, and then I go in to pick up my car, and, and they say, it's already paid for. What? Yeah, somebody already came in, paid for. Well, who? They didn't want to say. So, so don't confine an infinite God with finite logic. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. I, I, uh, if you're a strategic or linear thinker, you may struggle with this because you think through scenarios of how God could possibly do it without realizing that you're thinking within a box of, you, of your humanity. You're, you're, not, you're not seeing the possibilities that God sees. like Abraham did a couple weeks ago when we looked at Genesis 22. Abraham, when he was told by the Lord to go and sacrifice his only son Isaac, the promised son, it says in the text that, well, Abraham reasoned that God must be able to raise the dead. Whereas for us, I think we would have been like, wait a minute, death is permanent. If we kill him, there's no way he's coming back. But Abraham, with faith, was able to think outside the box. Number two, second application that comes to mind is let the Lord define what victory looks like. I've learned in my own walk with the Lord that uh, not only can the path he wants us to take be unexpected, but so can the destination. Uh, For example, a church member could pray, Lord, please use me to bless your church to which the Lord might respond, okay, then quit your job, sell your house, and relocate to the East Coast where I'm starting a new church there. Wait a minute, Lord, I meant this church. (laughs) Or, Or an infertile couple may pray, Lord, please give us our own children, to which the Lord might say, okay, I want you to adopt. No, but Lord, we want our own children. Well, I want you to adopt. Or a young man may pray, Lord, make me more like Jesus, to which the Lord replies, okay, I'm going to allow you to be mistreated, falsely accused, and rejected just like my son was. No, 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 no I didn't mean that. So you want to be like him, but not experience the other things that he experienced. So let the Lord define what victory looks like. It may not be what you think. Well, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, he defeated the enemies of sin, death, and Satan when he died on the cross and was resurrected three days later. Since our greatest enemies have already been defeated, any other challenge we face are a cinch for him. That means that as Christ followers, we can fight battles already knowing that we've won the war. Let that encourage your heart today. Because living faith enlists the Lord's help to fight our battles. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Lord, only you know the battles and the burdens that are being fought by those listening today. I just want to ask on their behalf that you would please move powerfully in the lives of your people here. Lord, would you provide demonstrable, memorable victories so that your people can have God stories to share and proclaim just like the people of Israel did Lord would you please provide by faith not because we deserve it not because we can do anything to earn it but by, by our mustard seed of faith would you provide God's stories of victory so that we can tell others that you are alive and well and give examples of how you are working powerfully in our lives. Father, please, would you cause your word that we studied today to resonate in hearts? Would you use your spirit to bring it back to our memory this week as we return to our routines of going to work and going to school? Would you, Lord, remind us no wall is too high no enemy too strong, no sin too powerful for you. And Father, finally, if there's anyone here who has not yet experienced the victory of having their sins paid for and being set free from the bondage of their sin and they haven't received the gift of eternal life through faith in your Son, then Lord, please, would you reveal Christ to them Would you show them how much you love them and desire a personal relationship with them? And help them see the blessing of repenting of their sin, forsaking it and turning to follow you. We pray all this in the powerful, victorious name of Jesus. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.